to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's American Bar Association podcast on cybersecurity and data privacy. This is your host, Jordan Fisher, and I'm really excited to bring with me today Chris Sagers, who's going to talk to us about this interesting, intricated, sort of nuanced way in which antitrust law and security and privacy law are increasingly converging. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Jordan. It's a privilege. Well, so I want to start out with some broad questions of just introducing yourself, what it is that you're doing, your current role, um, so the audience can get to know you. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Uh, so I teach at Cleveland Marshall uh, Law School at Cleveland State University. I've been there about 20 years. I'm an antitrust guy. Um, and I'm really kind of an antitrust generalist. I mean, I, I cover the gamut. Um, my, uh, uh, you know, everybody in antitrust now is a tech lawyer, whether they want to be or not. So, uh, uh, so I feel pretty at home on a podcast like this one. Uh, although a big question I think you and I are going to talk about is, uh, so what really is the connection? I mean, what does antitrust mm-hmm. have to do with, uh, with privacy? What's an antitrust guy doing on a privacy podcast? But that's an interesting <laughs> question in itself. Yeah, so let's just delve right into that. And I think it's really interesting that you said, you know, every antitrust lawyer has to have this technical component. I would say every lawyer has to be aware of it because name a business that doesn't run in some component on technology. Um, and I would be shocked to hear any any business named. Yeah. So, you know, you focus on antitrust, as you said. So where do you see your fit within this security and privacy world that we tend to focus on on this podcast? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. So, I mean, I I kind of have two answers to that question. Uh, you know, I mean, I agree with you. Every lawyer, whether they like it or not, um, needs to at least think about tech nowadays. Um, and, you know, I, I think that uh, com- comparisons can be overly easy and sometimes people are hyperbolic about it, but the digital revolution is a pretty big deal. I mean, it's comparable to really significant technological changes in the past. And when technology advances, um the culture in society changed too sometimes and the law has to change to adapt so uh we're all kind of dealing with that and um the 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 recent transition of the last 15 or 20 years has uh has uh, generated uh so many problems in antitrust that um you know aren't just interesting or intricate or difficult as as uh technical legal problems among antitrust lawyers um but uh, um, pose really big picture policy questions. Um, so, you know, a, a short answer to what's the connection with between antitrust and privacy. I mean, there is sort of a short technical little connection, which is that um, privacy finally specifically is starting to pop up in antitrust cases as a theory, like does concentration somehow affect consumers' access to privacy, or or would competitive markets provide people with better um, security or privacy or something like that? Those are interesting issues, and I, I want to talk about a couple of particular things that have just come up recently. Um, but, you know, then there's the much broader problem, though, which is just that as technology changes, the law has to change with it, and and we deal with, uh, with really huge problems. In, in my personal work, the biggest issue, I mean, I, you know, I'm not a technology person, really, at least not by... Uh, by my original training or experience, but 
uh, I had to kind of become one in the last 10 years or so because I wrote a book. Um, one of the one of the most important cases I humbly think in antitrust in um, in the last 20 years or so was very much a tech case, and it raised um, it raised these questions of how should this how should society and the law feel when technology changes and perhaps uh, changes cultural uh, you know institutions cultural values um, <clears throat> and. Um, uh, poses poses the challenge of how law ought to feel about that. Anyway, that the the case was the it was a famous case from about ten years ago involving uh, Apple, uh, the Apple Computer Corporation, and eBooks. Um, it's uh, maybe fading a little bit from people's memories, but it was a big case in the day, um, the eBooks case, <clears throat> and that's what I wrote a book about. And it's all about those those big issues. So uh, I see big issues and little issues. And uh, if nothing else, we all got to start thinking about how um, consumers interact with the technology that, uh, you know, is, is more and more important. And I think, you know, that that word that you used at the end, consumers, is a nice way to sort of bridge between these two areas, because it's often focused, you know, privacy, at least from a U.S. perspective, always has this consumer-driven sort of lens that we look at it. You know, looking at California, which has a privacy regulation, it's the California Consumer Privacy Act, mm -hmm. right? It's really driven around these consumer issues, and antitrust law is often driven around those same sort of consumer-facing issues. And I think since we haven't had this omnibus federal privacy law in the United States, we're seeing other fields start to sort of address the challenges that technology is creating when we don't have sort of this baseline privacy law or cybersecurity law, frankly, that we can turn to. And so sure. antitrust is starting to be somewhat of a framework we could look yeah. to. Whether that's the right framework, I think is very much up to debate um, in, in the legal world right now. And what an interesting perspective that is that, I, I mean, it may, I mean, the most telling thing may be that um, if we had to wait until privacy became an antitrust problem before we directly address it on the federal level proves how badly we've failed to meet our responsibilities, perhaps, because, I mean, antitrust can address uh, private, uh, we'll talk about this more, but I think it can address privacy only in a pretty indirect way. And only when um, a market has become sort of grotesquely uh, problematic, mm -hmm. uh, will antitrust step in and have anything to say about about privacy? So yeah, I mean, um, I, I'm not here to uh, make any claims one way or the other about what the government ought to do in terms of directly regulating privacy. But if we've gotten to the point of antitrust, we we truly must not be doing anything else. <laughs> right? Yeah, we, we've come to this point. Let's really, really take a look at a hard look at what we have. Mm -hmm. So I want to sort of delve into how antitrust is being currently used, and I think we have a great example um, currently, you know, pending, which is sort of the Google Apple antitrust lawsuits that were filed at the end of 2020. Mm -hmm. um, so first, sort of maybe just set the scene of you know what was what are the claims that are being filed in that case generally? And then I sort of want to delve into some of the, the privacy claims that might be incorporated or argued as we see that continue to evolve. Sure. So, uh, yeah, it, as you say, um, everything uh, kind of hit the fan in late 2020 after years of popular, you know, agitation and promises from government that antitrust was going to step up and do something in the high-tech marketplace. Um, you know, the first time our federal government 
really seriously considered a, a platform for was um, kind of a long time ago, 2012. So the Federal Trade Commission um, investigated uh, Google in, uh, I believe, 2011, 2012, uh, not having anything to do with privacy, but um, for uh, possibly monopolizing uh, search. The idea was uh, nobody else had a search engine that anybody was using, and maybe Google did things to uh, to abuse its dominance in search, blah, blah, blah. Well, uh, you know, that's a pretty long time ago. That's getting to be 10 years ago. And the FTC didn't do anything after a lot of uh, publicity. It decided that there was no antitrust issue in search. Uh, it, it's funny how times have changed since then. You know, uh, I recall people talking about the government like it was crazy. I mean, this was the Obama administration and people thought uh, uh, this is big government on steroids. It's crazy. How do you go? You know, how how does anybody think that a company is monopolizing something that's free? Uh, Google's the goose that laid the golden egg. The big dumb government's going to ruin it, blah, blah, blah. The, the things we usually hear. Well, uh, you know, the world seems a little different now. I don't know if uh, if everybody's changed their mind and no longer thinks it's crazy, but a lot of people seem more interested or more open to the idea of, of antitrust for the platform firms. Um, that's how it often seems to go. Uh, you know, antitrust is a, it's a weird policy in that on a general level, like on a generic level, most people tend to support antitrust. Americans, more than we often want to admit, are sort of free market oriented in our, in our ideology. Uh, and that, that's true of conservatives and liberals, I think, more than pe- people tend to think. But it's a lot, it turns out it's a lot easier to believe in those kind of values um, in the abstract and harder to uh, support them when, uh, when an actual lawsuit is filed. So a lot of times uh, we kind of have to wait in society for markets to get really, really concentrated or to see that there are, there's really kind of nasty conduct going on before people will get behind a lawsuit. Um, so I don't know. I mean, that, my impression is that seems to be kind of what's happening right now. I mean, there's a lot of popular support, more than I might have expected, for these various lawsuits against the big platform firms. But that took a long time. Uh, and it feels like during that whole 10 years, feels like to me, since, uh, you know, the, the Leibowitz Commission, as we say, the, the FTC of 2012, uh, since it started looking at Google, I've heard promises and promises and promises that the government was going to do something. And I really thought nothing was going to happen. I thought we would get through the entire Trump administration, you know, which surprisingly, I mean, we usually don't think of Republican administrations in modern decades as being aggressive antitrust enforcers. But the Trump administration talked a lot about the platform firms and talked a lot about uh, bringing some kind of aggressive trust busting. And I um, I kind of thought it was was all talk. And there's a lot of, lot of very overheated debate in the media about uh, antitrust enforcement and how it's, it's right around the corner. And I really thought it would never happen. And then man, did it happen. It all happened at once. A whole bunch, as you know, a whole bunch of lawsuits dropped all at once in uh, December of 2020, right at the very end of Donald Trump's presidency. Uh, two, two big federal cases, both the FTC and the Justice Department brought uh, big cases. There might be more federal cases coming. Uh, I believe there are three separate state actions against various entities and a slug of uh, private cases. No, and it's really, it really is interesting, um, one, to see how long it took. And, you know, frankly, looking at this from that privacy lens, I think to myself, well, I think we might be too late in some instances because they now have our data, right? They're not going to go back and delete our data. And, and, and I wonder, does data create that monopoly? I don't, I don't know if that's true, but 
it is interesting. It's almost like it took so long to sort of get there, but did it take too long that now seeing a path forward is going to be that much more challenging? Sure. And that, that's a very general problem in antitrust too. Mm -hmm. uh, very commonly, uh, you know, we have, um, we have a sense that we, we got to wait, we got to be careful. We don't want to jump right into these markets and screw them up inadvertently. Uh, that's been the rhetoric in the modern era since the we, we often talk about the conservative turn in antitrust, which begins in the 1970s. And since then, people across the spectrum have gotten very cautious about interfering. But the problem, is, I humbly think, is just what you say, not just in privacy, but in antitrust. If you wait until you've got only three or four big firms, or in the case of, say, Surge, one, you know, in, in social media, essentially one, uh, it really might be too late. I mean, if you enter an antitrust order now to break up Google or break up Facebook or whatever, uh, I mean, are we really going to have competitive markets? I, I kind of don't think so. So yeah, it's a general problem. You know, and I was going to say too, I mean, one of the, you know, debates that I hear is, the, and the challenge we see, and I think Google's a great example of this, Facebook's another great example of this, is that, you know, an at Gmail account is free, right? Mm -hmm. A Facebook account, profile account is free. Mm -hmm. It's free from a monetary perspective. And right. I think on the privacy oh. side, we would say you're paying very heavily in your data and your behavioral right sort of gotta, aspects of it. But you how do we handle it? Right? Yeah. How do we uh, handle that when like antitrust was really in the background, you know, like and at least historically has been this like price monopoly component. Well, if everything's free, who's is the consumer damaged? You know, how do we yes. how do we frame that? I think that's where we bleed into these privacy incorporation of sure. this into the into these cases. Yeah. I mean, I mean, listen, I you know, if you believe that antitrust would be a good thing now, uh, then the good news is that I think we've at least gotten past that hurdle. Like people aren't at this point saying to themselves in antitrust, oh my gosh, how can we challenge these products when they're free? Mm -hmm. uh, antitrust exists to lower prices and you can't get lower than free. All right, well, people now understand after this, this few decades of, of experience that um, these products aren't free at all. Uh, we're, we're giving something of value in exchange and antitrust can handle transactions in which things are, are um, uh, exchanged. Um, of value, even if there isn't cash involved. So I don't think that's going to be the problem. But I mean, I like you keep asking what I think are very interesting questions, more specifically than my generalized rambling. And so let, let's hit them if we're ready. And that is, is privacy an antitrust problem? Or how is it a, an antitrust problem? I see at least two things that are very interesting in what, what you've been saying. First of all, maybe data itself is the tool of market power, like uh, having a really big database, particularly if it's if it's highly individualized, right? Like if I not only have a lot of people's names, but I also have a lot of specifics about their their interests and their behavior, I've got an asset that maybe other people don't have, and I can use it to my advantage. All right, that that again is something that the antitrust world now I think has internalized and doesn't doubt. And <clears throat> for example, it's a big piece of the cases against Google. And Facebook. So the Justice Department's case against Google and the Federal Trade Commission's case against Facebook both absolutely allege that the monopolies are in having massive, um, highly individualized, differentiated um, piles of data. Okay, but there's a separate issue. And I, uh, this to me is more important and interesting, a separate way that privacy really is a competition issue. And that is, you know, it, it stands to reason that if there are more firms trying to sell the same product to consumers, uh, those firms will compete in various ways. Um, usually they, you know, people try to compete by charging low prices if markets are competitive. 
but they also compete on the basis of quality. And one aspect of quality for a lot of uh, online products is is um, privacy, right? Uh, privacy and security. And I, you know, I used to think, I don't know that, you know, that seemed like kind of a fruity, empirically unsubstantiated idea. Not it wasn't so much that I didn't believe in it. I I just didn't think you'd be able to convince a court that privacy competition amongst uh, say social media platforms or communications technologies was such an important part of the competitive uh, scene that we really could predict if there were more firms, there was less concentration, we would have we would have more privacy. The FTC versus Facebook complaint does a really good job of explaining how this is more important than people had thought. The privacy competition as a component of quality adjusted price, you know, a component of quality competition is more important than than outsiders from the industry might have thought. And that is when Facebook started, obviously it was small, it was a it was an upstart, it was uh, something a kid started in his college dorm. MySpace was the dominant firm and Facebook actively marketed itself as the privacy centric alternative to MySpace, which is bizarre in retrospect, right? Facebook is the worst abuser of of uh, privacy invasions. But it very actively marketed itself as as this alternative, and for a while it it probably was. Uh, but then, um, you know, killed off MySpace, and turns out that uh, taking advantage of people's privacy is extremely profitable, and so Facebook Facebook changed. So you know that that at least to me that makes a very strong case that privacy competition is real; it matters, and at least it, it's plausible that if there were more firms or there was there was more competition we would see privacy competition. Again, another nice example, important example is that um, in FTC versus Facebook, a key allegation for how Facebook violated the antitrust laws is that they bought WhatsApp. Mm -hmm. um, now that wasn't strictly speaking, you know, nobody's saying, okay, so everybody knows Facebook reneged on promises it made. It, it, it Facebook told the world and told antitrust regulators that if they, if it was allowed to get WhatsApp, it would preserve the company's traditional commitment to privacy. And Facebook didn't. Uh, I mean, I'm sure they they would tell the story differently, but as I understand the the allegations and the public reporting, Facebook uh, uh, reneged on a lot of things it said it wouldn't do. Um, okay, so FTC does not allege that reneging on those commitments was itself an antitrust violation, but FTC says, and uh, this is a little bit into the weeds of antitrust policy, but this is very important as a as a potential evolution in antitrust law. The FTC says, look, Facebook wanted WhatsApp, not because Facebook wanted feared that it or you know Facebook wanted to enter messaging. Facebook had its own messaging product, but that wasn't really Facebook's goal. It didn't want to dominate a new market. It wanted WhatsApp because WhatsApp jeopardized Facebook's position in social media. WhatsApp had the potential to become a social media. Uh, platform. And Facebook knew that nobody was going to do that just by creating their own new platform. Like you couldn't create a new Facebook and seriously challenge Facebook. Many people have tried. It always fails because everybody's already on Facebook. They don't need it. But they do need other products or they want other products that they find desirable. And one thing that they were finding very desirable circa, you know, 2011, 2012 was a highly secure communications platform that wouldn't sell their data. And that was WhatsApp. So suddenly, you know, WhatsApp was getting real big. WhatsApp had, I don't know, when Facebook bought it, like 100 million users. Why was it getting 100 million users? Because it was a privacy competitor. Privacy competition is real. It matters. And if there's more competition, we'll see it. 
if the if the Federal Trade Commission reviewed that merger, reviewed the acquisition of WhatsApp way back when, I think it was in 2012, and said, fine, the FTC couldn't really understand why there was a competition problem. In retrospect, we can see what the competition problem is, but it was harder then. Uh, but the thing is, if they had stopped that, if WhatsApp had been forced to continue as a, as a freestanding entity, well, we might have a messaging app with more privacy protections than I'm even comfortable with. I'm not sure I want the world to have that much privacy, to be perfectly honest, but it, we'd have a lot more than we now do, I think. What it actually brings up, so recently, um, Signal is a um, is a company that does end-to-end -end encrypted messaging. It's very privacy-oriented. The founder is very privacy-oriented. Mm -hmm. It's actually Signal's open source code was what WhatsApp built their platform off of. Mm -hmm. um, and Signal has seen a surge of membership in the last six months, but especially the last three months, because WhatsApp sort of changed their privacy policy and their terms. And a lot of people became uncomfortable with using WhatsApp and they turned to Signal, which, you know, is touted as a much more secure and privacy oriented platform. I mean, the co-founder or the founder of Signal is proud of the fact that whenever he is subpoenaed for access to their <laughs> messages can literally only confirm that when the person last logged into Signal, like that's literally the only visibility they have. So it's really interesting that you're sort of bringing up what happened in 2012, but we're actually seeing the impact of what you're saying here, where users are electing a more privacy competitive product over WhatsApp now because one WhatsApp's acquisition by Facebook and sort of this perceived in you know impact of Facebook into the WhatsApp pro product but then also because of this increasing privacy awareness that we're having so it's really interesting to sort of see this this story unfold um you know and that was 2012 and now we're in 2020 2021 and we're still seeing we're, we're actually seeing the impact of what you're talking about <laughs> yeah i didn't know that and i I think that's potentially like a really interesting natural experiment. If Signal can, you know, survive and flourish, well, I think that would tend to suggest that, you know, all, all those prognostications were right. Like privacy competition matters. You shouldn't let somebody squelch privacy competition because it is a, a meaningful byproduct of competitive markets. And therefore it's a reason to keep markets competitive. So I, you know, like the, the, ch the important challenge may be what happens when Signal attempts to be bought by uh, Google or Facebook or somebody. Um, mm -hmm. Will the government stop it? And you know, you you might say, well, let's hope this uh, this heroic founder who cares about privacy. I mean, maybe he really does, and he won't want to be bought. Uh, the big problem is, I mean, you tell me if I'm wrong, but it turns out to be hard to monetize free products that are also very privacy centric, right? It's it's one hard to monetize, and frankly, I think we're more aware as a society. But I would say generally, people are not yet so aware of what's going on with their data and sort of what's under the hood to make choices where it might cost them something versus the easy choice of saying, well, I'm just going to go with what's already available and it's free. And I think, and that's the challenge in this space, right? Is mm -hmm. I think more privacy oriented products, all things being equal, I would like to hope people would elect to use them. But I don't think as a society, we are at that point yet of where we're going to have people push that competition and sure. push that within the market without some external resource pushing for us. I, I'll tell you, I, I'm certain that, I mean, here's what I see. Uh, and this is based on a lot less expertise and in industry uh, background than you have. But <clears throat> I'm thinking a company like Signal, let's say that they um, they build up 50 or 70 million users. You, you know, um, 
there's big money in being acquired. One one point that's hammered over and over again in the fa- Facebook complaint, FTC versus Facebook, is that WhatsApp had not been profitable. WhatsApp really had very limited revenues through a, throughout its whole life because it was mostly a free product and it didn't sell advertising. And Facebook bought it for a price that was not only large, it was 10% of Facebook's market cap. I mean, it was a massive, and by far larger than um, any acquisition Facebook had ever en- engaged in. And it was a big acquisitive company already. Um, so, you know, a company like Signal, if you, if you get a big base of users, even if you aren't making any money, somebody will give you a huge amount of money. So it, unfortunately, it's um, it's like massively tempting to these founders who oftentimes are, are altruistic and um, have, have the right motives at heart. It's very hard to say no. But as you say, you know, if, if you don't, uh, you know, if you can't really sell ads. You can't sell valuable ads anyway without uh, selling data. And the other problem is, like you say, consumers don't don't properly value their privacy, p- perhaps no doubt because they don't really understand what they're giving away. Very few of us really understand, I think, what, what we're giving away. We we lawyers, sophisticated lawyers don't read EULAs. You know, we don't know what we're agreeing to. I clicked on a million Facebook uh, quizzes. Like I wanted to know which, uh, you know, Jonah's brother I was. So, I, <laughs> yeah. so I, I took that quiz, not knowing I was giving my data to Cambridge Analytica or whatever. So we don't really know what we're doing. Um, and the, you know, it's so that, I mean, that feels like sort of a very classic market failure. Like, like, uh, you know, you could describe it as sort of an, an externality or an information asymmetry or something. Consumers don't really, aren't, aren't able to value, uh, something that they're giving away. So they won't pay for it. They won't pay for the, the right of keeping it. Um, you know, it might be, uh, might've been worth it to me to pay uh, $5 a year or something for, for my Facebook subscription. If I knew that I could use it without, um, helping Donald Trump win the election by giving up, yeah. my data. but I, but I would never have paid that five, $5 probably would have been enough for me. Not, I don't know, you know, some amount of money that is much smaller than it probably was really worth it to me to have my privacy. I, I wouldn't have paid. Yeah. And uh, I mean, that's where it comes down to is. I think transparency and valuing your data. And I think, you know, what I what I what I don't I don't even know if legislators have a good sense of the value of that data. And, and the reason I said that is because so many companies are hoarding data on the hope that AI is going to make it valuable, right? Like running models against that data is going to make it valuable. So there's this perception that there is a deeper level of value in that data than we have even tapped into. Right. And so it's just sitting there waiting for somebody to develop that model that's going to call through it. And so it's hard to even, and going back to sort of earlier, some of your comments, like how do we regulate around a perceived future threat that we can't even, you know, unless you have a PhD in some pretty high level, you know, engineering and mathematics and computer science, you're really, oh yeah, it's going to be challenging for regulators to understand this space. <laughs> oh yeah. And I mean, the, the, the 50,000 people who are PhD economists and engineers and so on, who are thinking about this, they surely they disagree amongst themselves mm-hmm. on the empirical issues. No, no one could possibly know the answers to these questions. No, it's very but, true. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, this sort of brings us back to a point we started with, which is if you think antitrust is going to solve privacy problems, you, you're probably wrong. Um, because I mean, what can antitrust do? Antitrust can, you know, even in the best of worlds, antitrust could maybe ensure either that there are more firms selling the same product or that there are firms selling competing products who aren't permitted to agree with each other or or do various things so that they don't really compete. 
I mean, antitrust can make firms compete, meaning it can at least attempt to get people to offer products that are either higher quality or lower price. That's all it can do. And I think there's a lot of reasons to believe that that's not going to be enough to really protect privacy for a lot of reasons. For one thing, you know, there does seem to be a very serious problem in maybe in information technology generally, definitely in social media and communications. A very serious problem is the network effect problem. You know, um, these markets tend to favor one or a few very large firms. Facebook knew 15 years ago that there's probably really only room for one or possibly a few Facebooks because there's a huge network externality in being on the social media platform that all your friends are on. Um, Same with text and so on. So even breaking up monopolies or prohibiting, uh, you know, conspiracies that prevent competition doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be competition. It just means that uh, for, you know, I mean, if you break up the monopoly, well, the pieces of the firm that you broke up, they all have to survive in a competitive marketplace and the marketplace might not support these companies. Um, But then the other problem is, like you said, I'll confess, I've learned a lot in this 29 minutes or so um, that I had never thought of before. And one of them is that there's, there's like a big, you know, I don't know what the right word is. It feels like a, an externality There's a big positive externality in um, consumers paying for all the privacy that they ought to pay for. Society would benefit a lot from having better privacy protections, I think probably, but no consumer is individually going to pay the value of it to, you know, to society for the benefit that other people enjoy. And probably consumers can't really adequately value their own privacy interests. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the best that you can get out of antitrust is more competitive markets, but competitive defined in a very traditional way. Um, And it it won't, antitrust alone can't make consumers properly value their own privacy interests. I know, and I think it's really interesting when we compare to what's going on in Europe, where they have a privacy law, the general data protection regulation, and a very, um, I think, aggressive competition law agency that has been using the GDPR as sort of this sword to sort of go after big tech. Um, You know, I wonder if that's going to demonstrate sort of, we can't really use antitrust until we have this framework of privacy or whether we can push antitrust further than competition law, sort of the the antitrust named sort of legal framework in Europe. than they've been able to do. So it's really interesting right now to compare sort of the US and the EU approach. And frankly, they're going after the same companies, which is really yep. interesting. I mean, it's Facebook, it's Google. I mean, it's like the same people that were listed on the recent complaints in 2020 in the US have been in front of those regulators in the EU, literally on the same claims. It's just that the EU has the GDPR to underpin a lot of what they're saying. Sure, um, very interesting. I mean, and, and um, I think it's interesting to ask I mean, you know, I don't know if this is true or not, but I think it's pretty true. Even those EU antitrust claims, for the most part, they're really not privacy oriented. I mean, Europe has a complex and and I think aggressive privacy law, right? Like people, if you ask US companies anyway, the GDPR is is immensely overbearing and heavy handed, right? But I, so far as I know, it, it hasn't played that big a role in the antitrust cases. I mean, you know, fundamentally, European law, uh, antitrust law, is written very similarly to American law. And indeed, it was founded on the American law. The, the occupying allies sort of imposed the early origins of, of EU antitrust law, and they, they founded it on the Sherman Act. 
Um, <clears throat> but uh, right now, the EU is, is in, uh, asserting that law a lot more aggressively than the U.S. regulators are. Um, but, you know, except for one particular action, sort of a standout action by the National Competition Regulator of Germany, uh, which was very privacy centric. Um, uh, uh, so far as I'm aware, the EU itself, the, the European Commission has not really made privacy a key element. Uh, they've said, you know, we got a search case against Google. The search case says um, the thing that Google did was not that it didn't protect people's privacy, but uh, that it favors its own products in search results. You know, maybe there's a privacy angle there, but not not really. Uh, the EU Android case sued Google for essentially um, saying that uh, you know put, putting a bunch of restrictions on computer manufacturers that are supposed to preserve Google's uh, the, the prevalence of the Android operating system and the the Chrome uh, you know browser and so on. Um, so I mean, those are they're more aggressive than U.S. enforcers mostly bring, but they're they're still garden variety traditional antitrust cases. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that, you know, I'm more persuaded by everything you say persuades me more and more like, and don't get me wrong. I, I've sort of said, you know, antitrust is going to be a failure as a privacy regulator, whatever. I, I've implied that anyway, but don't get me wrong. I, I think it's great that antitrust is finally considering this and quality competition generally is more important than we consider it to be in America. Uh, you are right in saying that antitrust for a while now has mostly thought of its problem as a price problem. And mm -hmm. doesn't think very much about quality uh, or innovation, and it should. And so th this is a salutary development. But on the other, it, but it, I, my only thought is, it seems like it's going to be sadly disappointing as a privacy regulator. Like it's important, and we should do it, but we got to do more. Uh, and it feels like, like you say, some. I mean, somebody with a lot of a lot of fact finding power, the power to rely on a lot of uh, expertise, um, and the power to make fresh law needs to actually directly regulate uh, privacy protections. And that to me means Congress. Yeah, the ongoing question and saga of a federal privacy law in the United States. Uh, well, Chris, thank you so much for joining. This was fascinating. I always find when we bring these sort of multidisciplinary conversations, it'll, it's illuminative for everyone. You know, I've learned so much um, hearing you talk about antitrust law. Um, I'd like to end with sort of just one final question for you. I like to give my audiences, but are there any recent, you know, book that you've read on either cyber privacy antitrust yeah. technology that you could recommend to the audience yeah i'm going to be disappointing in a way because like my my books are mostly guilty pleasures uh, <laughs> and uh, but i have actually read some relevant things so but these are both guilty pleasures these are both books that you kind of like if you're a law professor you're supposed to show off that you just read habermas or you just read <laughs> some complicated legal doctrinal thing that was living hell to read. Uh, but the two books that are tech focused that I've recently read, uh, and they're both out of date even, they're not even new, uh, but one of them is, you know this book, The Inevitable by Kevin Kelly? It's about mm, yes, I've heard of that, yeah. Mm -hmm. Ooh, and you know, another one is, uh, God, what's her name? I should have looked this up before. Um, Magic and Loss by Virginia Heffernan. Oh my God, it's like, it's the poetry of, of disruptive change it's magnificent mm. magnificent i she, love that yeah she was like a, a magic and lost virginia Heffernan. she was a, a phd i want to say uh english person from harvard uh and now is sort of a freelance journalist writer of deep thoughts and that book is is magnificent so it, it's magic on the one hand because the internet 
has changed our lives in magical ways, but the world has also lost so much. Um, and that's such a great book to to recommend in light of our conversation around sort of right. the transformative nature of technology and what's Damn going right. on. But also one other one, and this is the trashy one, and I really want to say this because this is <laughs> the trashy beach read. A hatching Twitter is so good. <laughs> it's a hatching Twitter by I, I want to say his name is Nick Bilton. He's a uh, newspaper reporter, and it's like a very gossipy page turner. And it's <laughs> it's essentially oh I don't know if Jack Dorsey will read this, but it's essentially about how how uh, kind of dumb Jack was. Um, <laughs> and but they're, they all have this technology thread and I think it's good to be looking at it from a variety of perspectives. So, yeah. well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate it. And we'll have to get you back on as sort of the, the, the Yanchi Trust sagas continue into 2021. <laughs> right on, thank you so much. It was really fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Sections podcast series to the extent that the section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.